Only on WBAI in New York, 99.5 on your FM dial. Streaming live at WBAI.org. All right. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. This is a listener-sponsored community radio station providing you a Pacifica state of mind since 1960. The time now is 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons coming up. Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and thank you for tuning in to WBAI this afternoon. So in this show, we have talked with a lot of candidates for office, and often our conversations have turned to presidential politics and the race for the presidency this November. I'm very happy today that we have two amazing uh, uh, first-time candidates uh, that have succeeded in their bids for Congress and for New York State Assembly. I'm talking about Jamal Bowman, who bested Elliot Engel. He'll be joining us in just a short while. And following him, Zoran Mamdani, who bested an incumbent here in Queens for New York State Assembly, is going to join us. And then to close out the hour, I'm very excited about this because whenever I can book an author, I love to do this. I've got Claire Bond Potter, the author of Political Junkies. And I'm reading you the subtitle of her book because I want you to stay tuned for this whole hour. The subtitle, From Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy. So often with these uh, folks, we talk about presidential politics and our president never lets us down. Seems he gives us something to talk about every Thursday when Driving Forces uh, is on. As, as Joe Biden continues his upward momentum in the polls, our president is, well, trying to find a solution to energize his base and overcome his administration's heavily criticized response to the COVID-19 pandemic and also to avoid any blame for the country's economic woes. So what's his suggested solution? It, it came via a tweet today, this morning, and I'm not kidding. Every time someone pre uh, prefaces or, uh, something that the president has done by saying he did it on Twitter, you kind of know what to expect. He basically suggested in a tweet today that possibly we want to delay the November elections. Now, I think we can all agree that we do need significant voting reforms here in the city, in the state, and across our country. But, well, we've never canceled or postponed a presidential election before. Think about it. Election Day was passed by federal law back in 1845. The president does not have the power to change the date of the election. Well, the reaction was swift today. Not only Democrats, but quite a number of Republican members of the House and the Senate rejected the idea, noting again that the president doesn't have the power to change the date. And experts basically agree that it can't be changed without congressional approval. So meanwhile... Before we get to the first guest, just want to give you a very brief news update. If you had not heard, one of Trump's unofficial surrogates for his 2020 campaign, Herman Cain, passed away earlier today after being hospitalized for the coronavirus. Cain had made a bid for the Republican presidential nom nomination back in 2012. He was diagnosed with COVID-19 about 10 days after attending President Trump's indoor rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on June 20th. And while he had said that he had worn a mask, photographs basically showed otherwise, that he was seen without a mask and surrounded by people in the area, uh, in the arena, excuse me. So uh, I'll give you news throughout the hour because I want to get to our first guest. I've been very happy to have him back here on WBAI. I'm talking about Jamal Bowman, who in his first run for office defeated a 16-term incumbent, Elliot Engel, chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the June 23rd primary so he can represent the 16th Congressional District. And if you're not familiar with that district, it covers the Bronx and Westchester. Jamal Bowman is a former principal and founder of the Corner 
Firestone Academy for Social Action, which is a public middle school in East Chester, Bronx. He's been a leading advocate against standardized testing, and his anti-establishment campaign message focused on pressing issues such as education, housing, health, and criminal justice for all. Welcome back to WBAI. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. So it's wonderful to have you back. You, you had, in this campaign, you had a number of top Democrats rallying behind Elliot Engel to stop you. And you were quoted at the time saying uh, about your uh, election, it means this country is ready. It's yearning. It's excited for progressive change. So what were the key ingredients to your success in the primary? You know, we had an amazing team. We had hundreds, if not thousands, of volunteers uh, and we were knocking on doors and canvassing the entire the entire district from the very beginning, specifically targeting communities that have been ignored for far too long. So we went directly to NYCHA, Eden Hall, Gun Hill, Boston City, Co-op City, Mount Vernon, Yonkers, and parts of New Rochelle that have been ignored. And we wanted to make people understand that they are an essential part of the democratic process. This is not just about helping me to win an election. This is about bringing the voice of the people most neglected uh, to Washington and crafting policy that, meet, that meets their needs around housing, education, environmental justice, food security, and just uplifting those who have been, who have been ignored. Uh, that was the key, you know, early and often in uh, canvassing thousands of volunteers, millions of phone calls, literally over 1.2 million phone calls. And uh, we were able to get it done. How would you say your life story resonated with constituents? Yeah, you know, I was raised by a single mom along with my uh, three sisters. I was raised in public housing and rent-stabilized apartments. I went to public schools my entire life, uh, raised during the crack cocaine era and the AIDS epidemic. So that was all very formative uh, in my overall upbringing. Uh, I'm a victim of police brutality, uh, beaten by the cops when I was 11 years old, uh, victim of police harassment throughout my life. Um, so I know what the struggles of being black in America is all about, being poor in America is all about, being a victim of harassment uh, and neglect. Uh, you know, that's my story, and it's the story of the majority of people in this district. And that's why I think we were able to build such a diverse coalition centering racial and economic justice from the very beginning. Uh, because what I also understood is that regardless of race and class uh, and gender and orientation and belief and religion, etc., we have a shared commonality as human beings, many shared commonalities as human beings on this planet, and we were trying to bridge gaps to build the coalition that we needed to push back against a system that oppresses all of us. Uh, and I think that's what resonated mostly uh, throughout the campaign. What, looking at Elliot Engel, what should his loss, and the loss of a number, loss by a number of incumbents here in, in New York City and New York State, to younger, more progressive candidates like yourself, signal to incumbents about their bases of support and also about their political stances? You know, people were yearning and demanding change because those who have been in, in the establishment for far too long did a poor job of connecting with the people in an authentic way. We have been way too beholden to corporate interests and the wealthy elite. We've allowed the wealthy elite and Wall Street to take control of our political system and infrastructure. And the people, working class people, have been ignored. And that's why we were able to connect with them, because we are working class. We represent the working class. We don't take any money from corporate PACs. We are completely supported uh, by the people in the district. Uh, we're not going to take money from fossil fuel industry, pharmaceutical companies, the military industrial complex. We will continue to serve the people. And I think Elliot Engel and too many establishment Democrats and Republicans continue to be beholden to corporate interests. And it's a major problem. And it's why our democracy is hanging on by a thread in this moment. So this campaign season is, is completely different due to the pandemic. How did you have to adjust to be able to have, you know, contact with voters when it was so difficult for months to be able to have face-to-face -face contact? 
You know, canvassing early and often uh, really helped because we were able to build face and name recognition. Serving in this district as a middle school principal for 10 and a half years also really helped. But we were able to pivot very efficiently to an online virtual campaign because of our amazing team and our amazing volunteers. So Zoom calls, Facebook Lives, Facebook Hangouts, IG Lives, Twitter Lives, in collaboration with the Justice Democrats and other supporters across the, across the country talking about the issues that mattered most. Uh, that was huge. Teller town halls were huge. Most importantly, though, we were checking in people about their needs and about the collective trauma that we were all going through, asking them how they were doing and asking them what their needs were before talking about the campaign. So we took a much more human approach uh, once we pivoted uh, to an online virtual campaign and then paid off in the end. And I should also note I, uh, in the intro, as much as I mentioned that there were a number of you know, top Democrats who rallied around Elliot Engel, at the same time, you had a very strong uh, support network. You had Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. You had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Elizabeth Warren, for one, had said you were exactly the kind of person we need in Congress fighting for big structural change. How important would you say those endorsements, and in particular in our area, the endorsement of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ocasio-Cortez was in this election? I mean, they were huge. And I don't want to leave out uh, public advocate Jamani Williams, State Senator Alessandra Biaggi, State Senator Gustavo Rivera. Uh, they were critical as well, as well as Zephyr Teachout, Cynthia Nixon. I mean, we had a ton of support uh, throughout the campaign, and it was huge. I mean, our second or third best fundraising day uh, happened uh, after the AOC endorsement. So that was big. The first uh, fundraising day uh, was after Elliot Engel's hot mic moment. That was our best day, followed by the Bernie Sanders endorsement. That was our second best day, followed by the AOC endorsement. So they were huge in terms of fundraising. They were huge in terms of viability and affirming uh, my, my progressive uh, gravitas, if you will, um, and just affirming support for me overall. And that's why Election Day for us felt like a celebration. It felt like a holiday. I mean, we tripled voter turnout, tripled turnout amongst young people, tripled turnout amongst people of color. And even though people thought that this was a quote-unquote moderate district in the beginning, it turned out to be a lot more progressive than people gave it credit for. I do want to ask you about a, a few issues now. For instance, how you feel the presidential administration has responded to this pandemic? Can you give them uh, less than an F? Um, their response has been has been has been dangerous, um, has been neglectful, has been deplorable. I mean, Donald Trump is unfit to be president not just because he's a racist and a fascist, but because he's incompetent and he doesn't care about human life. We have over 150,000 people dead because of this pandemic uh, due to Donald Trump's uh, incompetence. And it's horrible that so many families have had to suffer so much because of his incompetence. And we're not just talking about deaths. We're talking about a one-time $1,200 payment as part of the CARES Act uh, that is not enough to keep working families afloat during this economic uh, downturn. Uh, the Democrats are coming back stronger with the HEROES Act, but the Republicans are still playing, playing possum uh, with an act that doesn't go anywhere near uh, meeting the bar. You know, we're demanding $2,000 per month demanding that $600 unemployment insurance continues and demanding the cancellation of rent, uh, a blockade on evictions and the cancellation of mom and pop mortgages. We need a bailout that focuses on the people, not on the airline industry, cruise industry, and the wealthy elite whose wealth has grown uh, since this pandemic has hit. So, you know, Donald Trump is the worst and that's why we got to get him out of office and then hold Joe Biden accountable towards meeting the progressive values that the American people demand. I do want to point out one of your policy initiatives. During the campaign, you unveiled the reconstruction agenda uh, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. What do you hope, what does that agenda involve? What do you hope it can achieve? It involves a process of truth and reconciliation and reckoning with the legacy of racism in our country. 
the original sin of slavery has left a legacy of racism that permeates every American institution. And if we don't have a process of truth and reconciliation, similar to Rwanda and Germany and South Africa, we will never be able to move forward as a nation. That includes reparations, massive investment in, in historically neglected communities, and a demilitarization and depolicing of our communities towards true well-being uh, public safety and public health. It's a paradigm shift away from over, uh, you know, what was the term I heard today? I want, I want to repeat it. It was such a good term. Uh, but it talks about how toxic capitalism has become and it's become economic oppression. Uh, and that's what we're fighting against. It's oppressive capitalism, militarism, militarization and racism. If we're able to defeat those three evils as well as sexism and the others, we can move the country forward. So the reconstruction agenda is a focus on healing the wounds of our history through a reckoning and moving forward collectively as a nation. And, and before I get to the next question about schools, given what you were just talking about, I'm thinking about watching some of the funeral uh, today for John Lewis. Uh, what do you hope his legacy is? Uh, his legacy is manifesting right in front of our eyes through the protests that continue to happen across this country. That's what John Lewis is, was, and always will be uh, in our in the spirit and the consciousness of our country. You know, his fight um, during the I mean, that's the kind of fighter uh, that John Lewis uh, was, and that's the fight that we're trying to bring to Congress, and that's the fight that people are bringing all over the country. So we're seeing the manifestation right now in front of our eyes, but we all have to step up and be a part of that fight. We cannot relax. We cannot take time off. Uh, the Republicans and the corporate Democrats are continuing to organize to keep us oppressed. And it's up to all of us individually and collectively to maintain John Lewis's legacy by pushing back against that oppression. So last night you had done a, uh, a Zoom call with Scott Stringer focused on education and schools reopenings. And I'm curious if you had, you know, if it was up to you, what would you, you know, what would you want to do this fall with school reopenings? What do you think they should look like? We need to dramatically expand outside learning opportunities. Um, outside is where the virus has less likely to spread. And there are so many uh, great spaces in New York City and New York State where we could bring learning outside, from Central Park to Prospect Park to Van Cortlandt Park to the Hudson to the East River to the Long Island Sound. There's just so many opportunities for outside learning. We need to hire more teachers to support that outside learning because we have to lower class size inside our schools. Uh, that's the only way this is going to work. Small class sizes, no more than eight or nine in a class. Uh, we have to have PPEs, mandatory mask, gloves, etc. And we need ventilation in our schools where windows are open, proper ventilation is taking place, uh, and the outside learning and, and alternative learning spaces are taking place inside theaters and office buildings where adequate. So it would be a combination of classroom learning, outdoor learning, as well as uh, um, virtual learning uh, to make sure our kids can remain as safe as possible. And then lastly, we need to test uh, consistently, every child, every teacher, get the results back consistently uh, to maintain uh, and make sure that the virus doesn't doesn't spread uh, within our schools and beyond. So we've got just about a minute or two left, and I open the show by talking about the president's uh, tweet suggesting that we delay the November elections. I mean, there's always concerns about voting, you know, or ways we can improve voting. And I was really moved by Stacey Abrams' book recently and talking about all the flaws in Georgia's uh, election system. Given the pandemic, how confident are you that this November's elections are going to run smoothly and also produce accurate results across the country? Uh, smoothly is a loaded term. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how smooth. I don't know if smooth is the right word that I that I would use. But I think I think the results will be accurate. You know, um, in our election here, um, you know, we had a huge turnout um, at the polls but also a huge turnout in terms of mail-in ballots. 
and it was very unsmooth and choppy in terms of counting the votes, in terms of how long it took, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, you know, after the vote was uh, the votes were counted, uh, the proper results were yielded uh, during this election. So I don't know if it's going to be smooth and we need investments, uh, financial and people power. Uh, to make sure uh, the the mail-in ballots are counted as as efficiently and effectively as possible. Uh, And I think the results will be accurate. But again, this is, and Stacey Abrams, by the way, is a a champion of this because she experienced voter suppression firsthand under some deplorable conditions in Georgia. But this is an example, again, of the president's fascism. He doesn't have the power or the right to push back election day, no matter how much he thinks he does. Um, but this is once again, him trying to be a bully and use his bully pulpit to, to scare the American people and thinking he has the power to do something that he does it. Uh, the results will be accurate. He will be voted out. And let's hope that the Senate is turned over as well. So we can continue to push the democratic party in the direction that the American people want us to go. And final question I have for you, when you, uh, you know, because of your role in education, your middle school students, what lesson would you want them to learn from your campaign and your election? Anything is possible. Uh, follow your instinct and your intuition and believe that with working your butt off, anything is possible. And believe in, in change for the better. You know, oftentimes, you know, you turn on the news, you know, you, you, it just seems like the world is on fire around you, literally and figuratively. And that's the way it feels like today and, and many days. But there's a silver lining. There, there's, there's hope and faith and strength in the unlimited potential of every child and in every, of every person in this, in this country. So I hope that they have hope after watching someone like me come from the background that I came from to ultimately win a congressional seat. And I hope it inspires them to continue to dream uh, big and effortlessly and to live with the full freedom and, and unlimited potential that they have to impact the world. So that's what I'm hoping happens uh, with, with this victory. And Jamal Bowman, where can people go to learn more about you? Yes, please go to BowmanForCongress.com. We still have a general election. We are still organizing to continue this movement. And we are pushing the census to be completed. We need everyone in CD16, particularly New um, Yonkers, Mount Vernon, and the North Bronx, and parts of New Rochelle to complete the census. We're talking tens of millions of dollars of resources that we need to bring into our community. So complete the census. It's imperative. Jamal Bowman, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you. So uh, you've been listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Jamal Bowman, who defeated 16-term incumbent Elliot Engel in the recent Democratic primary. uh, uh, primary. I want to thank you again for tuning in. If WBAI is important to you, and we'll get to the next guest in a few moments, if it's important to you, uh, I'd love for you to show your WBAI pride. I got my two WBAI masks in the mail this week, and I've been proudly wearing these face masks out there. And for a $35 donation, you can get one as well. These are great masks to show off your WBAI pride. It actually helped me at a news conference I went to yesterday because people immediately saw me, weren't sure who I was, and then saw the WBAI mask and figured it out. That helps uh, also show our public that you care about WBAI. So here's how you can do that. For a $35 donation, that's it. Go to... W, uh, go to give to wbai.org. That's give to the number two wbai.org, or give us a call at five one six six two zero three six zero two. Once again, that number is five one six six two zero three six zero two.
So with that, let's get to the next guest, another first-time candidate who unseated an incumbent when the absentee ballots in the primary were counted in the 36th state assembly race in Queens. I'm talking about Zoran Mamdani, who last week won the Democratic primary race and defeated 10-year state assembly member Aravella Simotis by only about 350 votes. And he joins a number of other newcomers, or will join after the election in November, a a number of uh, new Newcomers in Albany, such as Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, who we've had here on the show, and Jennifer Rajkumar, who also uh, in Queens defeated an incumbent, Mike Miller. So, with that, let's get to our next guest. Welcome, Zoran Mamdani, to Driving Forces. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for having me. So I purposely did not talk about your bio so that you can. Please, this is your first time on the show. So introduce yourself to our listeners so they know a little more about you. Absolutely. So uh, my name is Zahran Kwame Mamdani. I was born and raised in Kampala, Uganda, in East Africa. I immigrated to New York City at the age of seven in 1999. And I got my citizenship two years ago in February 2018. I am, as of a few days ago now, a former uh, foreclosure prevention housing counselor. I used to work at Chaya CDC, where I worked with uh, low to moderate income immigrant homeowners across Queens who are facing foreclosure on their longtime family homes. And now I am very excited to say that I am the Democratic nominee for the 36th Assembly District, which covers uh, much of Astoria in northwest Queens, uh, talking about Astoria, uh, Dittmar Steinway, and uh, parts of Astoria Heights as well. So, and you also were one of uh, several new Democratic Socialists uh, who prevailed in this primary. The, if I'm correct, the only one in Queens endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America. Describe for me what a serious socialist electoral bid looked like this season. Yes, absolutely. So, I yes, you're absolutely correct. I am one of uh, four candidates vying to, to represent um, in the state government, there is myself. There is Marcella Matanis running for assembly um, in Sunset Park. There's Farah Sufran Forrest, also in Brooklyn, running for assembly. Jabari Brisport uh, running for the state senate, also in Brooklyn. And all of us prevailed. It's very, very exciting um, to, to be going to Albany with all of my slate mates and to be joining State Senator Julia Salazar, who's already there. Uh, when you ask, you know, what does a socialist bid look like? I think it is in many ways to be unabashed about what our ideology is and what that actually means. So, you know, what I break socialism down into is a belief that whatever is necessary to live a dignified life be provided by the state. And so our campaign's main three tenets, our, our, our central policy platforms were built around housing, um, criminal justice and energy. And so in those policy platforms, we would explain that our views are not simply in response to the crisis of the moment, but in response to the larger crisis of capitalism and making it very clear that the solutions, they come from a different political ideology. Um, it doesn't mean that every single conversation I have with a voter starts off with, uh, with you know, a treatise on socialism, but it means that we kind of explain the links and connect the dots so that people understand how we got to this place in the first place. What's been so interesting to me is how many, uh, even incumbents, have tried to label themselves as progressive to curry support. Uh, you know, ever since AO, ever since AOC got elected, uh, I'm seeing this so often. And we're going into the 2021 elections, and I expect every candidate is going to suggest they're the most progressive. Draw the line for me about what a true progressive candidate looks like, and what are what, uh, in your view, constituents want from a progressive. Yeah, you know, I think you're totally right that this is a word that, as it's been used more and more, has started to lose meaning because people from all sides of the spectrum like to label themselves as it because they think that it's the label itself that will drive them to victory. I think that it's very difficult to define what makes a progressive. Um, and, and you know, I, I think in, in our race, what we sought to do is showcase the limitations of a word such as that and introduce uh, a word of, of socialism and showcase what these kinds of commitments mean. So in our race, some of the most important distinctions we talked about were about, you know, where does the money come from that funds your campaign and having an explicit rejection of money from real estate developers, an explicit rejection of money from police unions, uh, an explicit rejection of money from corporations, because you'll find people who identify themselves as progressives and have done so for years, and they still had money to return to police unions. And what I would argue is that 
you know, if you're if you're truly committed to a lot of these ideals, you would never have taken that money in the first place. Uh, additionally, I think it also speaks to what are your commitments with regards to your vision and and your solutions to these crises of housing, to these crises of policing, to these crises of of the climate. Um, you know, are you committed to decommodifying housing? Are you committed to decarcerating our state, decarbonizing our economy? These are kind of large-scale ideas that provide a compass in the way in which we're going to wage this battle. And what I'm really excited about is if you look at any of, and frankly, all of the DSA candidates, there is that commitment spelled out so that everyone has an understanding as to exactly what we're talking about. We're not using an amorphous term such as just progressive to describe each and everything. And you just touched on some of uh, some of these characteristics uh, about, you know, candidates who like to portray themselves as progressive yet uh, are accepting you know, money from unions, etc. What was your approach to define to find your competitor, Aravella, uh, you know, as you know, as a candidate that did not deserve support in your uh, in, uh, in this campaign? How did you try to define her? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, being the first challenger to an incumbent who has been in office for 10 years, there is a lot of responsibility on the campaign to not simply contest the, um, the current situation, but also to explain and illustrate to voters the history of the incumbent. Because, you know, as you very well know, you know, the hollowing out of local journalism across this country, but also here in New York City, and and the, the fact that people are just so busy with their lives and all that comes with it that to expect every individual voter to know the intricacies of an incumbent's record over 10 years when they've never been brought to light by a challenger, it really falls upon us. And so what we sought to do was to bring up votes from years past, was to bring up donors of now and as well as in the past, and to make it very clear that um, there are some you know, incongruencies here between what's being said and what's been done. And we need to look at the past to truly understand what we can expect from the future. Because in this moment, as you said, you know, there is a real feeling that the wind is blowing towards the left. There is a real um, desire of all kinds of candidates, whether whether they are insurgents or they're incumbents, to use the language of the left. And so it's very hard for someone to be able to distinguish between candidates that, you know, may on the surface seem similar. And so that's where the importance of this kind of research and and um, clarification as to somebody's record comes into play. Uh, using your words uh, about the wind, you know, blowing left, do you think at this point the Queens County Democratic Organization is dead or it needs to adapt? I don't think it's dead at all. I think it's very much, it's, it's definitely been, um, it's definitely not, it does not have the power that it used to have, but you know, as somebody who was spent my July 4th in 2019 helping to participate in the recount for district attorney candidate Tiffany Caban's uh, race, I, you know, firsthand saw, as did so many other Queens DSA and New York City DSA uh, members, just how the party still continues to, to exist. And I think that, frankly, I'm not very interested in reforming the party. I think that the party has served the interests of those in power. Um, and I think what we need to do is, is create an altogether different system of power, one that serves the working class here in this borough. So let's get to the issues. What are the issues you want to champion in Albany? I would say the issues that I want to champion in Albany, they mirror um, what we ran on here. So really, you know, focusing on, on housing, criminal justice and, and the climate crisis, you know, uh, with regards to housing, 24% of tenants here in Astoria pay half of their income towards their rent. And that's a statistic that predates the coronavirus pandemic. So who knows where that is now? One in four homes being bought here in Astoria are being bought by investors. So we are really in the throes of an absolute, you know, a real crisis here in this neighborhood, one that mirrors what's going across, going on across the city. And so I want to be appointed to the housing committee and I want to ensure that we pass good cause legislation and continue to fight for a future in which housing is not something determined by the market, but guaranteed by the state. Because for far too long, we have allowed the state to retreat and the market to advance. And we have allowed basic goods and things that are simply a requirement for dignity to become determined by, by market forces when it's not, it's not really what should, what should be allowed. 
And, and I'm glad you've talked about housing because one of the nonprofits I work with, the Partnership for the Homeless, has been dealing with a surge of of requests for financial support as people uh, this summer realize they are they possibly could be evicted relatively soon when the moratorium ends and they don't have any more unemployment in uh, coming in you know do you see any solutions so that the state should be uh, moving towards at this point i know federally there's discussions about the next stimulus plan and what that should involve but on a state level are there things you want to see right now that you feel that the current legislators need to move on well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think first and foremost, you need to cancel rent. You know, this is something that we've been pushing for for so many months. This is something that organizers have been calling for with every ounce of breath in their body. And it is something that the state continues to refuse. And, you know, frankly, we have a governor who thinks that uh, we've already taken care of the rent issue, to use his words. He thinks that by having a moratorium on evictions, the issue is solved. But what the moratorium does is it simply pushes the crisis to a later date. At some point, this moratorium will expire, and at that point, we're going to have a cascade of evictions. And frankly, uh, it needs to also be said that you know the absolute moratorium has expired, and we're looking at a moratorium that has you know there, there are now loopholes for people that can be evicted. Um, today, in, in our office, we host two groups: the Astoria Tenants Union and the Astoria Food Pantry. And both of those groups' work showcase the extent of the crisis in this moment, because the Astoria Tenants Union has been using our office to help people to apply. Um, for this rent relief program, this, this partial re- uh, relief program. And they've seen firsthand just how limited this program is and how it is in many ways not actually going to assist tenants as much as it is going to assist landlords. And then with the Astoria Food Pantry, you know, they, headed by uh, Michaela and Katie, they, they give out food every Friday morning to about 150 families here in Astoria. And by Thursday night, by tonight at midnight, there will already be people lined up for that. And that speaks to the urgency of the need in this moment. It speaks to the way in which our government has left people behind. And, you know, while we have a governor that's been trying to do a victory lap about the response here in New York State, I think, frankly, we need to inspect the many ways in which we have failed the people of the state and that we continue to do so. So we've got just about a minute or two left, and I want to just... Uh, throw one of your quotes at you and ask you uh, to uh, uh, respond to it. Uh, Upon announcing that you had uh, won in this primary, you said that the the movement that has been built can't end here. And the quote is, uh, it has to last beyond any one election or any one candidate. We have to build something that will endure for years to come. So how do you achieve that? I think the way that you achieve that is you ensure that the organizations that make this possible continue to grow and continue to build their strength. For me, the two organizations that were chiefly responsible for this victory were the Democratic Socialists of America, specifically the Queens branch, and the Muslim Democratic Club of New York. And so what I meant by that quote is that I encourage each and every person to ensure that their attention to this moment is not governed simply by the date of an election but by a continued awareness of the crisis and the need to respond to that. And a response to that is not only in the voting booth, it is also out in the streets, it is also through advocacy and organizing. And, you know, especially here in Queens and and across New York City, these are two organizations that I have benefited immensely from by being a member of them, and I truly believe will be part of bringing about a more just world. Zora Mamdani, where can people go to learn more about you and your campaign? Yes, so they can come to our website, which is ZahranForAssembly.com, and my name is spelled Z-O-H-R-A-N, and then it's spelled out F-O-R and then Assembly. Or they can find us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Zahran K. Mamdani. And I hope to see all of you there, and thank you so, so much, Jeff, for having me. And I'd love to have you back again sometime. Thank you so much for joining me here on Driving Forces today. Absolutely. I'd love to. Have a great day. You've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM and also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I was just talking with Zoran Mamdani, candidate for assembly in the 36th district in Queens covering Astoria. Uh, I referenced in the interview with Jamal Bowman that I had read Stacey Abrams' book recently. I'm a big reader. And recently I also read another book, uh, John Bolton's book, The Room, the Room Where It Happened. 
Uh, and, you know, while it gives you his perspective uh, uh, into the president's indecisiveness and self-serving behaviors, you know, I found that otherwise I wasn't too impressed. I didn't, you know, find anything too revealing. But as I read it, I also thought about my personal views, where I stand on issues and why I agreed or disagreed with Bolton's assessments throughout. Uh, most often, I consume my news from traditional mainstream outlets. I mean, on my desk right now, I'm near the end of the show, if we have time, I'm going to read something to you uh, from the New York Times today. But I read the Times, the Post, the News. I go to the more mainstream media. And, you know, and I do learn about a lot of my news from Twitter and Facebook. But before I often retweet, unless I know it's from a uh, verified source, I do check other sources to make sure it's accurate. Or, unfortunately, in many cases, what I see turns out to be fake news. So in the last week, I read this really insightful book uh, called Political Junkies that delves into the history of alternative political media. So I'm happy that the author, Claire Bond Potter, is with us today. Political Junkies is published by Basic Books. I want to read you the subtitle again, From Talk Radio to Twitter, How Alternative Media Hooked Us on Politics and Broke Our Democracy. And before I get to the interview, just a little about Claire Bond Potter. She's a political historian at the New School for Social Research executive editor of Public Seminar, and she was the author of the blog Tenured Radical from 2006 to 2015. Claire Bonpotter, welcome to Driving Forces. Well, thanks for having me. Okay, political junkie. What makes a person a political junkie, and how and when was this term first coined? Okay, well, that's a great story. The, the term political junkie was coined by Hunter S. Thompson, the gonzo journalist. And he coined it when he wrote a book um, called Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. Hunter Thompson was sent to cover the, the Democratic campaign um, by Rolling Stone. And Thompson actually didn't really care much about politics. He'd written a bunch of books about um uh, you know, drugs and the Hell's Angels and so on. And Thompson found that he absolutely got sucked into the atmosphere of a political campaign and he couldn't get enough of it. And at a certain point in the book, he says, getting hooked on politics is like getting hooked on heroin. It makes you into a political junkie. And what that means is you just can't get enough of it. Even when you know it's not good for you anymore, you just can't keep stop keep seeking out political news. In the book, you trace the evolution of alternative media since World War II, uh, and an evolution that, as I read through the book, it's closely tied to advancements in technology. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. Um, you know, really, alternative media starts on radio and on paper. Um, possibly one of the earliest alternative media was Father Coughlin's uh, radio show in the 1930s. Um, Coughlin, as you may know, was a right-wing populist, and he eventually gets tossed off the air because of his anti-Semitic rantings. Um, but where I begin the book is with Izzy Stone, who is a progressive journalist who loses his last job, the last progressive newspaper in New York closes, and Stone is out of work. He's a left-winger. McCarthy's after him. He can't get a job. And he finally realizes that he could actually do the kind of journalism he wanted if he self-published. So he creates a four-page newsletter that has one story in it every week. And he lives off the money from subscribers. So subscribers pay him $5 a month for IF Stones Weekly. But what the book really tells us is that over time, mainstream media gets reshaped into alternative media. We see the growth of the talk radio sphere, but we also see television being repurposed. Um, for other kinds of news shows. And then, of course, by the time we get to the 1980s, the Internet hits. And it's really when we get the Internet that media makers can create a platform for themselves that is completely independent, and many of them start making a living off of it. And we should also define, particularly in today's society, uh, how would you define alternative media? What you know, where where are the lines between what would be mainstream and what would be alternative? So that's that's an excellent question, and I define alternative media 
as media that is anti-establishment, whether that's anti the political establishment, anti the media establishment. It is, it is a media form that stakes out an independent position on the margins. Um, what's interesting about alternative media is it's not necessarily um, non-corporate, right? So some of our most robust alternative media today, um, think the Drudge Report, which has been around since the 1990s, think Breitbart. Um, there, there are a range of platforms that actually make a ton of money. So you can be alternative media and actually make a lot of money. I think of Twitter and Facebook as forms of alternative media. Those are multi-billion dollar corporations. But what they do is they create a certain kind of freedom for the people who communicate on them. And they, they release those people from editorial control and gatekeeping. Whereas the mainstream media is really defined by not just editorial control, but being linked to other establishments so that the Washington Post and the New York Times is heavily interwoven with the political and corporate establishment. Doesn't mean they always write things that these people want to hear, but they rely on these other establishments for their prestige. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. I often have talked on the show about how as much as I watch CNN, I also try to watch MSNBC and Fox News, for instance, because I want to see what's covered and how it's covered, what's mentioned and what is not mentioned. How is the delivery of news been transformed because of alternative media? Well, that's also a great question, and it's a great question to ask right now. I would say the answer that is most relevant to everybody out there is that every single person who owns a cell phone can make news if they want to. Um, the, the activists who are marching in the streets right now are marching because of broadcasting that people did from their telephones that they uploaded to Twitter, uploaded to YouTube, and so on. So that's the most extreme aspect of it. Um, but news was also changed by alternative media because when these other platforms, and I'm thinking blogs, um, but also the Drudge Report, also social media, it speeded up the news cycle so that reporting was, you know, normally a process that went through multiple copy editors, multiple editors. You know, a, a New York Times story in the 1960s was touched by about 12 hands before it went to the newspaper. Now that has really tightened up. Um, because the news moves so fast when, in fact, for example, the president can broadcast to the public without needing to hold a press conference, without needing to have a camera around. That means that the mainstream media is always trying to catch up with news that is already happening, already being broadcast, already being talked about by the time they sit down and write a carefully edited story about it. Yeah, and think about it. Just this morning, we wake, well, we're awake by then, but uh, one of his tweets this morning is about suggesting that we move the November elections, and now all the mainstream media is following that up. Right. And this, of course, is something Donald Trump is very good at, is setting the tone of the news cycle. And this is something that, that politicians have always done, but doing it from Twitter was a whole new phenomenon when tr Trump started doing it. So today, for example, was the day when the nation buried John R. Lewis, um, one of the great civil rights icons. And it was almost as if we had parallel news environments. On the one hand, we had John R. Lewis's funeral. And on the other hand, there was all of this buzz on Twitter um, and on the blogs and on news platforms about whether Trump is actually going to decide he's not going to have an election after all. Um, so, so that actually, it makes the news cycle much less coherent. But what it also means is that establishment voices are not in charge of what the news is going to be. And that is perhaps the sort of greatest achievement of alternative media is to nudge a self-styled elite out of the way and say, we're going to decide what the news is. You aren't. So uh, you mentioned activists before, and my mind goes to a wonderful chapter on hashtag activism. And so talk about the role that hashtag activism has played in the transformation of alternative media. 
Right. Well, you know, one of the reasons I loved writing that chapter is it shows how users and activists actually take a technology, in this case, Twitter, and make something out of it that the people who invented it hadn't even thought of. Right. So the hashtag is actually invented by Twitter users in order to create coherent stories within the platform. Right. And what we see um, beginning in 2010, 2011, is that activists begin to use hashtags and they also begin to use Facebook to organize massive um, political events on their own. Uh, one of the most obvious of those is Occupy Wall Street. That was organized for two years on the internet. And when it finally took place, all of the activists were communicating with each other on Twitter. And then, of course, that was followed up by Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter itself is a hashtag. Um, it's a hashtag that became the name of an organization. But it is a thought um, that Alicia Garza has on the night that Trayvon, murder, Trayvon Martin's uh, murderer is released, um, is acquitted in his trial. And she puts it on her Facebook, Black Lives Matter. Um, and that becomes a kind of clarion call to a network of civil rights activists to begin to mobilize for justice. Um, so alternative media is something that can be turned to um, a, a demonstration or other kinds of political organizing for people who don't actually have any institutions or any money to get that job done. So we've got just about a minute or two left, and I want to quote from Political Junkies. Near the end of the book, you had written that when every political junkie uh, gets news tailored to their taste. It's not just our candidates that lose, democracy does. So where are we headed? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the flip side, of course, of alternative media, is it targets people for its messages. So we all are increasingly choosing to read what we want to read and not read the rest. Um, and I think one of the things we have to do is what you said right at the beginning, um, which is we have to actively move out of our networks and read things that we wouldn't ordinarily read. The Internet makes that possible, right? And so I think one of the things we have to do as citizens is ask ourselves if, as political junkies, we are constantly making ourselves energized by reading things that we agree with, what would it hurt us to go out and find something we didn't agree with to read? What would it hurt us to go out and talk to somebody who doesn't agree with us and have a conversation? Um, Barack Obama talked about that today at John R. Lewis's funeral, in which he said political disagreement is what democracy is about. But if, in fact, we're off in our corners just talking to people who agree with us, that's when democracy breaks. And on that note, where can people go to learn more about you and about political junkies? Well, I would love to see them at my website, clairepotter.com. Um, and they should also visit us at Public Seminar, uh, publicseminar.org. Um, and I would love to talk to people about the book. Claire Bon Potter, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. So the book, again, is uh, called Political Junkies, and it's by Basic Books. Uh, Claire had just talked about uh, John Lewis's funeral today, and, you know, I was watching a portion of it, and it was incredibly moving. And she, she brought up President Obama, three presidents had attended the funeral today, in addition to Barack Obama, also Bill Clinton and George Bush, our current president, of course, did not. But I want to quote President Obama and then also then end the show with something that John Lewis had actually written that was published in the New York Times on the op-ed page today. But first, what President Obama said uh, in his eulogy today was that America was built by John Lewis's. He, as much as anyone in our history, brought this country a little bit closer to our highest ideals. And someday, when we do finish that long journey towards freedom, when we do form a more perfect union, John Lewis will be a founding father of that fuller, fairer, better America. And I, I now, just as I get ready to close, 
Uh, I'm just bringing over the newspaper now from the New York Times today. It was a, a wonderful column. If you get a chance, look at it online or pick up the paper that had been written by John Lewis before his passing. And uh, I just wanted to read you a, a passage that I just think is so important uh, for people to hear in this country at this time. And he wrote that, Ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America by getting in what I call good trouble, necessary trouble. Voting and participating in the democratic process are key. The vote is the most powerful, nonviolent change agent you have in a democratic society. You must use it because it is not guaranteed. You can lose it. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that. And also has been cited in the show today. Remember to fill out your census form as well. Very important because that way we can continue our representation. Thank you to my guests today, Jamal Bowman, Zoran Mamdani, and also author Claire Bon Potter. And thank you, Reggie, for making all of this happen. If you missed any part of the show, go to WBAI.org, then go over to Programs and Archives. The show will be up in about 10 minutes. Thanks for joining me today. My thoughts are with all of you. I wish you good health in the coming days and weeks. Have a great day. yet canceled. A New York State program might help some renters cover up to four months payment. If you've lost income due to COVID-19, paid more than 30% of your income in rent before COVID, and have at least one person in your household who is a citizen, permanent resident, refugee, asylee, etc., you may qualify. Applications close on Thursday, July 30th. Get more information at hcr.ny.gov slash rrp or call 833-499-0318. That's 833-499-0318 between 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. or contact the local community housing group. More information at wbai.org. Hello, WBAI listeners and supporters. Tune in Friday, July 31st from 10 p.m. to midnight for the second report of 2020 from the WBAI Local Station Board. This month, you'll hear from various members of the board. They'll talk about their responsibilities, recent developments throughout the network, and ask for your ideas on how to build a stronger WBAI. So mark that date on your calendar. Friday, July 31st, 10 p.m. to midnight. The second report of 2020 from the WBAI Local Station Board. Only on WBAI in New York, 99.5 on your FM dial. Streaming live at WBAI.org. Tune into Folk Radio this Thursday from 10 p.m. to midnight, presented this week by Edward Haber, and that's only some of what you'll hear. Folk Radio, Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight on WBAI and WBAI.org. This is Jarrett Murphy. You hear me here on WBAI 99.5 FM every Wednesday at 5 on The Max and Murphy Show with my broadcast partner, Ben Max. Ben and I have been friends for years and broadcasting together for almost as long. And look, he's a great guy. But recently, I've realized I want to start being buddies with 
other people, people who listen to our show, people who listen to other awesome WBAI shows, people with a few bucks to donate to WBAI on a monthly basis to keep independent radio on the air, people not named Ben. What's that you say? You're someone like that? How cool. Go to www.give2wbai.org or call 516-620-3602 or text WBAI to 41444 to become a WBAI buddy. Then tune in to hear us every Wednesday at 5 and see the difference your support can make. And hey, thanks for being such a great pal, buddy. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons, heard Thursdays at 5 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News coming up, followed by Justice Matters with Bob Ganji at 6.30 p.m. And before we go into the next program, I just wanted to remind people that, yes, we 